Hello and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Brand, and this is season one where we are looking at Pact in Theory. Today's episode is about Gestalt, the core element of Gestalt, and we'll be leading things off with an interview with Stan Tatkin, who will tell us how, as Pact practitioners, should we be thinking about Gestalt fitting into our work with couples. And then from there, we talk to Robert Resnick. Robert is a longtime Gestalt therapist and has a ton of experience working with couples. I found the interview to be super accessible, and I found there to be some really practical advice about intervention strategies when it comes to the point of contact. And at that point of contact where we get couples into what feels like a more authentic way of relating how should we be thinking about those moments? What should we be doing in those moments? How do we know what the rhythms, how do we follow the rhythms of couples? Um, a lot of really good stuff about enlivening the real-time experience of contact between couples. So I hope you enjoy. And if you're liking this podcast and you got some feedback for me, I'd love to hear from you. Um, without further ado, here is the episode. Welcome, Stan, to another episode of the Pack Street Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Brand. I'm here with Stan tonight, and we're talking about my interview with Robert Resnick, who is a longtime Gestalt therapist. Um, and uh, I thought we'd start here with um, a definition of ex existentialism and how it relates to packed and secure functioning. So take sure. it away, Stan. Okay, so um, uh, one of the great things about looking at the history of psychotherapy in this country, but also in Europe, uh, and also in, the, in, in, the, um, in Japan and so on, uh, is uh, looking at the evolution and finding that every new idea is a reaction to old ideas. Uh, and existentialism, particularly humanistic existentialism, was a reaction to behavioralism in this country. Uh, and to some degree, uh, psychoanalysis, uh, which sort of is acting against, um, uh, you know, uh, a belief that uh, that you that you could reduce people to this or that reductionistic uh, ways of thinking, and moving more into phenomenology. Uh, phenomenology is we don't really know, um, and putting people in a box is really uh, kind of dumb. Because people, if you really understand how complex people are, don't fit nicely in any box. So our tendency, you know, to uh, to do that and to you know uh, think we can simply observe from the outside and not affect what's going on, um, you know, with each other, um, is is an old idea from an old uh, Newtonian um, uh, Cartesian. Um, idea uh, that you can observe things without influencing them, right? Well, enter uh, humanistic existentialism and uh, phenomenology, and then later intersubjectivity uh, that moved into uh, psychoan psychoanalytic areas of that, that you are affecting each other, and um, the therapist is part of this, this intersubjective field um, that has to be accounted for uh, you, you can't just simply just uh, observe another person and then have these reductionistic ideas that fall uh, that that would uh, fit all people. So 
Um, so in existentialism, which basically came out of Germany and, and then France, but strong in Germany and then in France and then here, um, was the idea that in reality, we are all subject to what's called the throne, condi uh, throne condition. We're thrown into uh, a situation where we don't know um, who we are or how we got here. Um, we know we're going to die. Um, life basically has no real meaning. There, uh, the meaning is what we make, but no, you know we're not you know born into meaning. That we're basically alone, even though we can commune with other people. Uh, we're born alone. We die alone. And actually, that first part isn't true. But you know, th there is that that sense of nobody, and this is true, can know exactly what it's like to be me. Nobody can be in my head. We're never ever on the same page exactly. We're just approximating each other. And, um, uh, and so there's this, in some cases, an image of everybody, the best we can do, everybody's uh, you know, on the ocean in different boats, but we can hold hands. Now, the, the pathology in existentialism is um, denying these existential givens by bending reality in a way that's pathogenic, that, uh, that uh, denies death, denies that there is no meaning, that we make up meaning, denies the fact that we are alone, denies the fact that there really is no God. And even though there were, there were religious existentialists, many of them were, uh, were atheists, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, this follows, uh, you know, God is dead mm -hmm. <laughs> period of life. Um, and, um, uh, and so, uh, it's, it's kind of an angsty, <laughs> angsty, uh, theory, um, that was softened by the humanists, um, uh, that, uh, thought about, uh, you know, the meaning of people coming together, the meaning of people holding hands, empathy, um, uh, the, the, the importance of relationship, right? Importance of relationship and interaction. Um, and this was, uh, you know, beautifully um, uh, demonstrated in, in um, the writings of, uh, oh my God, I'm dropping his name, um, Yalom, mm. um, who himself uh, fashioned himself as a humanistic existential. Mm -hmm. Irving Yalom. Irving Yalom, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, so um, that's, you know, uh, we get into now Gestalt because it has to do with experience, has to do with the real experience. The therapist is in the experience. The therapist doesn't know. The therapist is not the, the authority. The therapist is simply another mind in the room that is facilitating communication and honesty and, uh, and, and being yourself and not hiding, not denying existential givens, um, uh, not, you know, and being in, inauthentic, right? So we have the beginning of this, you know, focusing on the self, which is distinctly psychoanalytic. Um, that's why a lot of these people uh, came from that area, not from behavioralism, but from analysis, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of things having to do with intrapsychic stuff, of which Pearls was also interested in. Um, the lovely thing about Gestalt from this tradition, and again, reacting to the mechanistic reductionistic beliefs of behavioralism, which is basically we're machines, you know, we're all about operant conditioning, mm -hmm. which also had kind of a, a scary idea to it, 
post-World War II that, you know, that we could mind control people, we could change them, we could make them into robots, that you don't have free will, right? Mm -hmm. So that sucked. Mm -hmm. um, but here, it's all about free will. It's all about um, experience, right? And the beautiful thing about Gestalt, it was about, I don't know what this is going to do, but let's play with it. Let's experiment. Um, let's try it out. Um, let's, you know, play in this playground um, of finding out who we are and who others are and how we operate in the world. And so, um, so Pearls had all these wonderful exercises that put people uh, under pressure um, uh, socially, right, with others, especially in group. Um, they were just lovely. Um, and so th there's a whole other idea here about, again, very Rogerian in that the, the self, if allowed to, um, will grow and develop naturally uh, what gets in the way are uh, things where we're avoiding reality and uh, bending reality and becoming false selves and uh, all of that, that is what's causing the, the problem. And so Gestalt has a remedy for that. Um, that's that's uh, experiential and phenomenological. Uh, so that was great. The only thing about Gestalt where I left off and uh, Robert Resnick will probably disagree is it never quite finished itself as a theory? Yeah. Uh, it didn't. It, it it didn't complete. Um, and there was a period where there was a split after Pearls died, where uh, people who were really uh, into Gestalt, as taught by Pearls, uh, started to split off by those who became influenced by self psychology, and uh, it seemed like a fit there. And self psychology and some analytic circles uh, started to get very strong on inner subjectivity, where the therapist is part of the uh, the whole thing. Uh, the relationship is the most important thing. And that changed uh, uh, psychoanalysis. And so did self-psychology and Kohut and British object relations. So they split off. And, um, um, and so it, it, I think the theory suffered a, a bit in being fully complete, a lot of great components, a lot of great ideas. Um, and it sounds like um, Resnick um, has really fleshed out some things that I had never really been aware of, like his three pillars. Um, th that was not as explicated to me when I was learning Gestalt and some other things. But uh, most of what he said is distinctly Gestalt. <laughs> Uh, in, its, in its attitude, in its view. I do want to say something to our packed uh, people, and that is um, there is a conflict, um, I believe, with uh, the humanistic existential approach to couple therapy. And, uh, and that is because the therapist is operating in a phenomenological way that doesn't provide structure to the couple. And though it works with individuals, it works with groups. Couples in distress don't have the time or the luxury to float, um, you know, in, in, in the way that uh, they'd have to tolerate the anxiety that the therapist does not cap or does not contain. Uh, because after all, it is reality and it's part of the, uh, of the experience. So the therapist in 
this modality as I have experienced it um, is loath to uh, to direct, loath to give a goal, a sense of where we're going, loath to confront um, or to provide guardrails. And this I find to be too anxiety provoking for uh, for couples. I've never seen it work. I don't hear, I've never heard of it working. And yet I do have colleagues that say it does. I've just never heard any report from people in this kind of modality um, in couple therapy. Well, uh, usually it's a little too angsty. Wouldn't, wouldn't, um, I'm just trying to think about how, how, you know, sort of the interview with Robert Resnick, he would, might say, um, okay, so the dialogic, the dialogic part of this is right. that you get two people together and they're da- they're bound to have difference, and within yeah. that, and within that difference, um, there's going to be that negotiating that difference is where sort of the magic happens, right? I mean, that's where that's where people can really grow. Is I have I'm different from you, and when I feel different from you, I either go along with what you say, um, or I fight you, and you know, and and sort of you know, uh, stand in opposition to you. And that would be similar to, I think, our conceptualization of kind of, um, you know, withdrawing or, um, or, or clinging, right? I mean, I think that that would right. be somewhat similar. Um, and, or codependency, uh-huh. um, right? Um, you know, or rigorous, you know, uh, like the Gestalt prayer, you do your thing, I'll do mine. If we should meet in the middle somehow, great. Um, I'm, I'm mangling that, but uh-huh. that's pretty much the the drift, right? But and and um, but that does not sound I that doesn't sound to me like we just float out here. It sounds like we've identified areas where we have difference, and let's try to work it out. Yes, and that's where that's where uh, Resnick is different than uh, than other um, couple therapists who are not using Gestalt, they're using, uh, they call themselves humanistic existentialists. And that is uh, even less, that has less structure, less form than Gestalt does. So he says, um, uh, you know, that there's two ideas here, a model of fusion in marriage, and mm-hmm. one of, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, of difference or differentiation, right? Mm-hmm. This is Ellen, Ellen Bader in her model. Right differentiation uh people being themselves not fused not codependent um not simply compliant with each other but tolerating just a difference and being able to to uh, be themselves while accepting the other as it is right um and working together uh and maybe i'm i'm saying more than ellen would say but that's my uh sense of uh, how she thinks and he seems to be talking here as well about uh, what some might say differentiation, right? Okay. All right. Well, let, let's get back. Let's get back to sort of how Fritz Perls and Gestalt fit into Pact. I think that's probably um, just your conceptualization of that. And um, and uh, you you wanted to say I don't know if this is a good place to put it in, but did you you wanted to say something about priming? And would this be a good place to talk about sort of um, uh, the ideas about priming? Well, priming is a memory, a memory um, uh, notion. Um, we, um, you know, are primed to uh, feel, think a certain way, um, and it's usually 
under the radar. Um, so for instance, uh, somebody walks in with a clipboard that's priming, you automatically assume they know something. Mm -hmm. um, somebody comes in in a uniform, you automatically assume they have authority. Um, you walk into a negotiation and the chairs are very, very comfy. Um, that's priming you to have a soft negotiation or hard chairs, a hard negotiation. Mm -hmm. Then there's priming in terms of, and this you know, goes back to, to the Jeff Zeig talk, um, priming where I'm, I'm suggesting something, I'm giving you, I'm priming you for a particular idea. Um, we do this all the time with each other, except often it's negative, right? My, the way I say hi to you, instead of going, you know, Jason, hi, how are you? With a bright look in my uh, eyes and a, uh, and a bright vocal tone. That primes you um, and me for what's to follow, as opposed to, you know, hi, um, what do you want? That sets the tone, that primes for uh, something quite different. And so we're doing that all the time, um, but we're also making errors by priming. So I may, uh, in a group setting or in a family situation, I look at a face that looks angry, that I'm primed by that face, and then I look at your face and I assume you're angry. Mm -hmm. That's an error that I make. So, um, so in, in, in Gestalt, uh, the priming here is in the attitude of play and experimentation, um, which is set by the therapist. The therapist's attitude, how things are being introduced, the general tone of what we're doing, um, and that is distinctly PACT. PACT is about play. You know, we're doing a lot of things that are, you know, quote unquote games, uh, playfulness, even though they have serious connotations. We're experimenting. Let's try this. Let's do a declaration. I'm not saying that you should say this, but let's see what happens when you say it. Now, we're also doing certain things that pearls didn't do, and that is we're looking at somatic reactions. We're looking... Um, at what leaks under the pressure and what it says about what the person really wants and perhaps what they're up to. Hmm. So, you know, we're, we're using these techniques <clears throat> like any theory, according to, um, you know, our model and our, our container, our structure, um, the same exercises, but we're, we're using them for uh, more or less, depending on, on, you know, what we're doing. Like I said, the empty chair work, that I do um, is really the gestalt empty chair work, but merging object relations mm -hmm. and we're working with the internal set of uh, self and object representations um, in the chairs as if they were a couple, right? Distinctly different uh, yet similar. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, the play, the phenomenology, uh, the idea of, of field theory where everything uh, is uh, connected, right? Um, what's in the field, uh, the nonlinear thinking, um, the gestalt of what's happening that we're getting as we get their narratives, as we listen to their PAI or do their PAI or do anything with them. We're, um, you know, we're, except we're molding things. Um, and in the gestalt work, it would be more self-discovery through questions and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so in our in our work, we're a little bit more strategic than that, a little bit more along the lines of, of Jeff, 
uh, in terms of we're trying to create an effect, uh-huh. um, which is outside in as well as inside out. Does that make and, sense? I think so. I think so. The um, I'm getting a little confused just based on the interview because because I thought what was so nice about the interview was the way that um, was the way that Robert uh, really made uh, the case for kind of people being in the moment, experiencing, um, kind of having to be on the spot in the moment in a way that they had to really experience things um, yeah. as they were unfolding. Yeah. And that I found very compelling and very much what I appreciate about PACT is that kind of, oh, look what just happened. Let's deal with it. Right. As do I. I mean, uh, uh, pretty much everything he said about, you know, field theory, everything is related. Mm -hmm. um, Nonlinearity, right? Um, basically systems thinking um, as imagined by, you know, Bateson. Um, phenomenology, um, meaning making. Um, uh, you know, uh, the dialogue, presence, inclusion, commitment to the dialogue, the interaction, the discovery, uh, being in the present moment, which requires, uh, you know, certain commitment, and that is uh, the presence, right? Uh, being in the moment uh, and not in your head and not uh, outside of the, of the intersubjective field, right? So, all of that is 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 amazing. is is terrific, and it's it's exactly what we do. Um, uh, he uses self-regulation, and I, you picked that up as something different. Mm -hmm. um, self-regulation with him has a, a almost an entirely different meaning, where ours is uh, is biological, right? It has to do with regulation systems that are in the right hemisphere that have to do with self-management under different states of mind. So, um, um, but everything else he's talking about um, is, is part of what we do and how we think. The words are maybe a little bit different. Um, his use of contact and withdrawal, uh, also uh, stuff that we use. Um, and, and the idea of dealing with differences, right? Um, let's see what else. Authenticity, choice, the idea of making choice, the idea of making decisions, yeah. the idea of coming together as being choiceful, the idea of creating, co-creating a shared mythology as co-creation, not of fact, but as something we both agree on. Um, all of that is choice, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and has to be authentic. Otherwise, uh, it's not a, it's not a fully collaborative system. Um, uh, we're not after false self relationships or pseudo secure relationships that are based on false self. Um, we're interested in people who are saying what they mean and uh, mean what they're saying. They're not just complying to uh, to be, uh, you know, to avoid conflict. Um, it, it really is about also the therapist being fully authentic uh, and not hiding and not pretending, not being as if, but fully out there, which means uh, making a lot of mistakes, admitting them and repairing them, right? The, I think that would be kind of a good place for us to wrap up. I really appreciate uh, the time, which is there's in both the Zyg interview and the Robert Resnick interview, we recorded these together. Um, there's a lot of talk about technique versus kind of underlying understanding. Right. And um, and I I just wanted to hear you talk for a minute about 
uh, this idea, how much, how does PACT conceptualize, how much should we learn technique and how much should we have an underlying understanding? I think the underlying understanding is the greatest per, uh, percentage of what's required. The underlying understanding, the ability to connect and resonate on an intersubjective level, an implicit level, to be able to be present and attentive um, and not so sure as to uh, get dug in and start to uh, rigidify um, and start to be in love with our own theories, ideas, hypotheses, and so on, um, that we can't know. It's based in, I don't know, let's find out, let's test and retest, let's discover, let's corroborate this information. And even then we could be wrong. Um, th this um, always looks at the idea that, uh, that not only do people mislead, but they also don't know much of the time what is going on uh, because we're driven subcortically. We're driven by automatic processes that gate um, uh, uh, information in order to conserve energy, right? There's a, a real evolutionary and biological uh, purpose for being uh, clueless a lot, right? Because um, nature has other, other uh, things uh, that we have to deal with, such as you know, staying alive and being alert to threat. Um, so, so that idea uh, is always there. Um, our techniques um, uh, place, you know, second or third fiddle to experience, to what we see in front of us. They're simply, um, they're simply ways to stimulate um, uh, feeling, memory, uh, to uh, uh, for people to experience something that. Uh, we hope will be become important to them because we don't do anything unless uh, it's important. It's not important unless it usually um, causes us distress. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of keeping people under pressure and in distress is also creating an experience uh, that makes um, uh, what they're doing in the moment important and brings about self-awareness. So Gestalt is about becoming self-aware. Pact is about becoming self-aware and aware of the other. And this is where we get into, uh, into uh, systems and in, into object relations. That awareness of the other leads to awareness of the self and vice versa. That's great. Um, and our next... And have one without the other. And our next interviews will actually be about family systems and about object relations. So we're, I think that's a good place for us to wrap it up for today. Um, as usual, Stan, thanks so much for the time. And um, I love talking to you. And it's really inspiring um, the way that you put all this together. So thank you. And, and Jason, thank you so much for what you're doing. Um, I love your interviews. And, uh, and I love talking with you as well. So thank you. You're welcome. I am honored today to have our guest, Robert Resnick an existential and gestalt therapist who, uh, who has an office in Santa Monica and teaches around the world. Uh, welcome, Robert. Thank you very much, Jason. And so, Robert, I just thought you, we would start with uh, you telling us kind of what we need to know about your background and how you uh, became an existential or um, gestalt therapist. 
Well, I am a Gestalt therapist, and the foundational base of Gestalt therapy is an existential base. Uh, but in fact, at one point historically, that might have been the name. That was one of the names up for grabs uh, when Fritz Perls and Laura Perls and Paul Goodman were trying to come up with a name for their 1951 book. And existential was one of them. But there was so many existentialists and some of the existentialist positions were not in congruence with Gestalt therapy uh, that they decided to go with Gestalt therapy. Um, and also existential therapy typically has a very strong philosophical base, but a very loose, if not even non-existent sometimes, uh, methodological or theoretical basis. So, yes, we are existential. On top of that, we are Gestalt therapists. But one of the, one of our uh, support systems is existential uh, therapy. Um, and I've already forgotten the question. Okay, great. And already this is a great example of, of how you kind of uh, bring the bring bring the topic to where it needs to be. And I really appreciate that. And um, and the question is, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, uh, I'm PhD in clinical psychology, um, and I couldn't find anybody that I thought could teach me anything. I was an arrogant little guy, in, in that, or big guy at that time, but um, there were not many people that I really respected their work. But fortunately, there were a few, um, which was good solace for me because I would have wondered if I thought there was nobody that could teach me anything. And I, when I was doing my internship at uh, UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute, I stumbled upon Gestalt therapy accidentally, um, and I found a home. Um, it was, I was, did not like playing doctor. I did not like either uh, behavioral approaches or at that time that place was heavily psychoanalytic. Um, I didn't see that as very useful. Social learning theory had its limitations. Uh, so when I found Gestalt therapy, I found a home. It was a place not only where um, I was allowed to be me, to show up as a person, obviously with clinical judgment and discretion, uh, but I was not only encouraged, I was actually pushed, like uh, a little kick in the pants, you know, about who are you right now, rather than hiding behind the facade of, of clinician or uh, uh, you know, uh, traffic cop to someone else's interaction with the world. So then I ended up studying with Fritz Perls for five years from 65 till 70 until he died. And uh, with Jim Simkin, who was one of his, uh, one of Fritz's mentees. And I was with, with Jim um, for a little longer, but uh, until until Jim died in 1984. Uh, but I was with Jim for about five years in practice with him. And then he moved from away from LA. So I then became a visiting trainer in his program in Big Sur. Uh, so I, I'm old. That's what it proves. <laughs> uh, so I've been doing Gestalt therapy for over 50 years, 55 years. And I've been doing training for 50 years. And as it, if you looked at the uh, film on my theory synopsis, then you know that uh, Fritz invited me to 
introduced Gestalt therapy to Europe, and that was exactly 50 years ago, September 1969. I know that because I picked up a new Volkswagen while I was there <laughs> and I had to wait two extra days to get the 70 model. So I know exactly when it was. That's great. And I've been going back to Europe, uh, oh, three trips a year for four to six weeks each trip. I leave on Monday for another one. Uh, and I've been doing that for 50 years. So I have done a tremendous amount of training, uh, mostly in Europe. We also have a program here in L.A. and a program in Seattle and occasionally in other cities in the States. But Gestalt therapy is very big in Europe. It's not so big here because we have some um, debris from some of the early abuses by people who would just think, oh, you just watch a film or you do a weekend workshop and then you just do what you feel. Um, and they created a lot of damage and a lot of uh, debris that we're still uh, digging out of in the States. Although so many of Pearls's fundamental concepts that were heresy at the time when he started writing in the 1930s are now integrated in almost all mainstream psychotherapy. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the appreciation I got looking looking at uh, your your training videos and reading up um, is just how much uh, Fritz Perls is now integrated into all of the thinking that we do. And I thought that'd be a good transition into what are the uh, three pillars that sort of, I know that there's been, there's a contemporary gestalt, which is, which is differentiated from the gestalt of earlier days. However, it sounds like there's three pillars that really kind of hold up and really sort of support um, Gestalt thinking over time. Can you talk about those? Sure. Uh, the three pillars stand on an existential ground. Okay. But the first pillar is field theory. And field theory has to do with that you cannot understand any living thing, especially a person, unless you understand them in interaction with their environment. And in the early days, the psychoanalytic people back in the 30s, when Fritz was saying this heresy, were only interested in the alleged unconscious, unresolved conflicts within the psyche of that person. And uh, nobody exists in a vacuum. We are all embedded in a context and the environment and the interaction between the person and the environment has to be viewed if you want to understand what that person is and who that person is. And field theory says that everything is related, uh, including the history of the field, which usually is manifest as the culture, the ethnicity culture, the religious culture, the class culture, the national culture, that all of those things are, are in the history of the field. The field is what's going on at the, at the moment. You can't look at the whole field at once. So if you look at a subset of a field, now you're talking about a system. A system would be a subset of the field, which is one useful way to describe it. So it might be an individual. It might be a couple. It might be a family. But that that everything is related, whether it's obvious in the first place or not. Right. The second uh, pillar would be phenomenology. Uh, Prior to Pearls, almost all therapists believe that they know better than the client what things mean. Uh, so they would interpret according to their 
uh, orientation, if you were a Freudian, if you were a Jungian, uh, whoever you were, you would uh, refract who the client was through that prism and come up with a meaning for them. Well, Pearls was interested in what's the meaning for the client? Not your meaning or uh, Freud's meaning, but what's the meaning for the client and would uh, explore and help the client access what what meaning they make. And phenomenology is about meaning making. It's about how people make meaning. And in our Gestalt language, meaning is the relationship between figure and ground. So the figure is that which stands out. And ground is what you bring to the table. So if you're an 11-year-old kid and you see a baseball bat, the field you bring, uh, the ground you bring as an 11-year-old kid is, oh wow, I can play baseball. However, if you're an adult and you're being chased by a lion, that same uh, baseball bat has a totally different meaning. Oh, I have a weapon. I can try and fight off the lion. If I'm freezing in Siberia and I come across it, oh, I can heat my house. The meaning <laughs> changes as a function of the relationship between figure and ground. The meaning is not in the figure, in the baseball bat, and it's not in the ground, those three examples. It's in the relationship between the two. Meaning right. comes out of relationship. The third one is dialogue. And dialogue has to do with, this is uh, mostly from Martin Buber, uh, who was a Jewish theologian, but the, the you, his work about dialogue doesn't necessitate any kind of theistic uh, thing to it. Uh, okay. So that dialogue has to do with the presence of the therapist showing up with discrimination, clinical judgment, showing up and touching the client with who they are, Inclusion, which is taking in what who the client is, their meaning, their experience. And then the third piece is the commitment to dialogue, which means being open to being affected by the other person and being open to affecting the other person without trying to control the outcome. Mm-hmm. That would be monumentally stupid in many places to do that. We live in a very socially complex world. But to have the option to be able to have that kind of relationship, a dialogue, when the two phenomenological organizations of both people meet at the point of difference is where awareness happens and, and where therapy happens. You need difference in order to have awareness. And as I I like to say, to have difference, you have to have some movement. If it's Mm -hmm. static, you either go into fusion or you go into isolation. So you need some movement. And the movement creates the difference and the difference creates the awareness. So dialogue is the third uh, pillar of the, if you will, the tent. on the floor of existentialism. Great. And, you know, it's funny. I don't know if it's the legacy of sort of the 70s and primal scream and catharsis, but I think that one thing that is important today is to kind of remove that 
valence from this and and show this this is very practical stuff is my has been my observation of your work and of and of gestalt therapy i mean this is not sort of hippy dippy uh kind of stuff this is really on the ground um how do we how do two people um i i i'm not totally sure what the right word is but can you pick that up from there and kind of take and 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 talk about both the practicality of this and where and and how you'd like people to see um, Gestalt therapy in a in a current day lens? Sure, uh, I I love the question. Uh, people come to the table of any encounter. They come as who they are. I mean, who else are they going to bring? I stopped believing 40 years ago when clients would say, oh, I'm not like this outside. Of course you are. You bring who you are wherever you are. Uh, the old expression, wherever you go, there you are. Well, it's who you are as well. So each person brings to the encounter their whole history, which is manifest in their characterological stance. And character uh well, the goal of Gestalt therapy, let me just put that in there. The goal of Gestalt therapy is the restoration of self-regulation within the environment you exist in. So it wouldn't be self-regulation for you to take a deep breath underwater. For a fish, that would be great, but it won't work very well for you. Uh, so self-regulation is not a formulaic thing. It's an interactual thing with who you are and who the environment is. And every child follows the biological imperative of survival comes first. So kids do whatever they can do in the best way they can with their very limited resources in the service of survival. That's healthy. Whatever that kid did, if they hid in the closet 12 hours a day in a war-torn uh, country or with a crazy bombastic parent or an alcoholic rageful parent, that was healthy. That's not character. That's a creative adjustment. That's healthy. That's beautiful. When that becomes frozen, becomes habituated, which means goes below awareness, that's the birth of character. And character comes from many, many, many different sources. Today, one of the very popular ones is, is uh, attachment history. Uh, a hatchment attachment style. And I'm old enough to remember when that was popular the first time, 40 years ago, Bowlby, uh, 50 years ago, it was very, then it waned and it's, it's come back. And it is important, but character is far more than attachment style. It's interjects rules that you followed. It's behavior that fit for you to survive that is anachronistic now, but continues on. Character is not only how you behave, half of character is fixed ways of perceiving. Ways that you perceive the world, which then, of course, affect how you respond. And that's been integrated, uh, by the way, and come up with a new name, old wine and new bottles, as schema theory. Uh, but what that is, is a fixed way of organizing a perceptual organization or a fixed gestalt, if you will. Uh, the jargon is not important. It's a fixed way of seeing. If you grow up in a place where everybody's after you, a slightly paranoid stance is a very good and healthy way to survive there. Uh, 
But when you're 42 and you're hiding in the closet uh, 12 hours a day that helped you survive as a kid, it's not very useful now. Now it's it doesn't fit the situation. It's from another era. So character is is the freeze framing of of a cluster of what was healthy that now has become automatic. The beautiful part to me, the exquisite part of Gestalt therapy is in a dialogic relationship, the characterological stuff will emerge so the client has access to it. Now, some people will will mistakenly say Gestalt therapy is not interested in history. Well, we're not interested in psychological archaeology, no. But we are interested in the relevant history, the relevant past, as it affects self-regulation in the present. And the beautiful part is when you work from a dialogic model, the relevant past will happen right in the room between you and the client. Right. Yeah. And if it's a couple, it will happen between the couple. Uh, In the individual work, you're part of the couple. But you have the real thing when the couple is there. Uh, The real thing meaning the person that they are really involved with and to see where the relevant past is interrupting their self-regulation in the present. That doesn't come from interpretation. It doesn't come from theory. It comes from the palpable actuality that's happening in the room at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you experiment with it. You can taste it. You can deepen it. You, you can see it. So it's not that the past is not important. It's the relevant past. And what makes it relevant is that it interferes with self-regulation. There are a lot of parts in the past that support self-regulation, and that's wonderful. Therapy is usually about interruptions. How That person is human beings, all biological things, are self-regulating. Character is the, the pollutant of uh, self-regulation, so we are looking at what are the interruptions to the self-regulation, and awareness is the methodology to interrupt that interruption. Okay, and just just to clarify, because self-regulation is a term that's thrown around in a lot of different ways now, can you just can you define how you're using the word self-regulation? Yes, in two ways, uh, and that and, you know, I think I'm glad you said that because there is a confusion sometimes. Self-regulation has to do first with within me. The self-regulation of getting clear with where I am, what I experience, what I think, what I feel, what I want, what I don't want, etc. The other part of self-regulation is the self-regulation within, between me and the other, the environment. Sometimes it's a person in couples. It certainly is my primary other. Uh, sometimes it's with the weather. I mean, it can be abstract things or not abstract, but big things like the weather or the economy or the politics or the nationality, or it can be with my kids and when to discriminate about when to be dialogic with your primary uh, partner, with your best friends, with your kids, clerk in the store, not so much, the judge or the cop, not at all, Uh, (laughs) supermarket clerk, probably not. but to be, it's not that strategic relating is bad. It's a question of where, with who, and when. Learning that discrimination. But you have to have the option if you're going to discriminate. You can't choose an option if you don't have it 
uh, within your awareness and within your repertoire. Okay, so so in order to in order to formulate things this way, you would have to have, I'd imagine, a concept of what is the couple, what is the relationship between the couple, because it's not the clerk at the store, right? So so you must have a base. Do you have a baseline that says here's I mean, we would in, in pact, we would say secure functioning, that, that we believe that that there's something called secure functioning that couples can do and can achieve. What it, what what is it that you're thinking grounds couples in something sh- that they might share or not share in the therapy room? Uh, looking at how they engage each other. OK. And with the. The, I mentioned field theory before, the larger field is the culture that has created a model of marriage. Okay. And the model of marriage in Western world is a fusion model. Two become one. People usually think it started with Genesis. You shall leave your mother and father and cleave to one another and become one flesh. No, it was in the culture for tens of thousands of years before Genesis, which is only about four or five thousand years old. That's recent history. The fusion model of marriage was a very good characterological in the sociological, anthropological lens, a very good adaptation to survive 10, 20, 30,000 years ago, where two would become one because you couldn't survive and have the species survive if you were separate. Women could not raise children and feed and protect. Men could not have children and it wouldn't work. So they became one living in small groups, but they came one. It's a fusion model of marriage. Every religion picks up on that uh, in one way or the other. Uh, And even the, uh, the secular literature, I love to quote Plato's Symposium, where, where they cut people in half the gods because they, don't want them running around. They want them to worship them. And that coming back together, looking for your other half, looking is the, they call that eros, love. That uh, we're in a fusion model. When you're in a fusion model, difference is always suspicious. Difference is criticism. Difference is betrayal. Difference is a put down. Difference is a power struggle. I mean, you can't find much good about difference in our culture, especially when it comes to marriage. So we typically say two become one and then there are none. Because you get 55% in Western countries, Masamenos, of a rupture and divorce. The literature leads you to believe that, oh, so 45% do well. No. If you talk to people, and you find out there's a huge number in that 45% that we call the secretly miserably married. And these are people who stay together. If that's the criteria, staying together, slavery was a success. But they stay together, but they stay together because they're terrified to be alone or because of money or because of social status, uh, stigma and status, or because of religion or because of the children. Those are a lot of reasons to stay together that have nothing to do with is this mutually nourishing most of the time. So we are looking at supporting people at 
particularly looking at how they deal with difference. Because that seems to be the nexus of most couples' issues. Not what the differences are. That may be 3 or 4%. But how do they deal with difference? And uh, I can go into the ways that the couples typically do. And I can go into our model of dealing with difference if you want that. Well, I, so I think that's where... Uh, I think that's where we can find a lot of overlap, actually, with PACT and and where I think that Gestalt fits in to the model. Um, there's a process within negotiating difference that requires contact and withdrawal. Is that does that sound right to your ears? Yes. OK. And what you do and what what Gestalt seems to do so well, and, and I also want to just put in here that you uh, that a lot of the therapy that you do is with your wife, Rita, um, the, couple's work, yeah. the couple's work, and it's beautiful to watch. The two of you together are, I mean, talk about a secure functioning couple. It's really beautiful to watch. You guys hold couples in this area uh, where difference, you illuminate where difference is, and then you hold them in the contact and withdrawal back and forth um, in a way that I just that, that I think is um, I, I, I'd love to hear you talk about that, that 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 frame um, and what you're doing within that frame. Uh, first, let me the caveat. We only okay. have the luxury of working together like that when we're doing training. OK, we rarely see a couple together in our private practice. And in the last few years, we've cut down our private practice because we're traveling and teaching even more. But uh, we very rarely do we see a couple together in a private practice. We have the luxury of doing that when we're when we're doing training and we also like doing it. Uh, so uh, the the uh, what we're interested in is. As I said, how people accessing with them, how they deal with difference and um I mean, the frequent ways, just a quick thumbnail, is that uh, one person defers to the other. They go along. They prefer. I mean, they, they, they defer and they pretend because they don't want to poke the bear. They don't want to start trouble. They don't want to rock the boat, blah, blah, blah. So they go along. The problem is, is that then they're not there. They've lost themselves. The other way that couples frequently do it in shorthand is they withdraw. Now I've lost you. If I defer inauthentically, I lose me. If I withdraw, I lose you. So couples don't like that. They don't do a lot of it. In that second film, Dealing with Difference, one of the women uh, did, it, did it the first one of deferring and going along but not liking it. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's not there. I mean, who's there is is somebody posturing, not not her um, with her partner. So what couples typically do is they try to get rid of the difference. And there's the rub. There's the rub that comes from the culture of to become one. We should not have differences. And it when they try to get rid of the difference, the most usual way is they try to change the other to be like them. The other, of course, digs their heels in and pushes back and may even then try to change the first person. 
So they go back and forth trying to change each other. That's where difference turns into conflict. Mm-hmm. Conflict is the attempt to get rid of difference by changing the other to make them like you. The other resists. It goes back and forth. It escalates, spirals up into a pop and explosion, and then a withdrawal. And it's a fight. It's a fi- it's an adversarial fight for whose reality is going to prevail. Mm-hmm. Not only whose reality, but who's going to get to define reality, which is why couples, all of us, find ourselves fighting about some things that we then are embarrassed, how trivial it is. I'm sure if you see couples, you know they'll come in sometimes and say, we had a terrible fight here last week, but I don't remember what it was. The other mm-hmm. guy, the other person says, no, I don't. I remember. You said you told him to bring money for the meter and you said she didn't. And they both get chagrined because it wasn't about the meter and the quarters. It was about whose memory will prevail here, who will have the privilege point. It gets to an existential issue of who defines reality as if there's only room for one reality. Mm-hmm. If you can allow for the difference without trying to change each other, now you can move from a, uh, a uh, fusion model to a connection model. Because instead of being adversarial, you have the luxury now of becoming collaborative. In the collaborative, you're not trying to change each other. It's not this way. It's standing together and looking at the whole situation, which means I have to be concerned about my needs and wants and your needs and wants, that both of us are looking for things we might do, sometimes solutions, uh, things we might do that would work for both of us. Yep. In the adversarial system, I'm politicking my point of view and you're politicking your point of view, and it's a zero-sum game, which is why it leads to explosion and withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you about, okay, so how do you hold people in a, in a conversation, uh, a couple, how do you hold a couple in a conversation about their differences? How, how do you do that? By using the differences that come up and how they deal with it there, going for the fresh fish. It's not just a theoretical discussion. I mean, sometimes there's some of that's there's room for, I think, importantly, for psychoeducational stuff sometimes. But I usually wouldn't start with that. But to deal with something that's happening in the room, uh, what I notice is whenever she says such and such, you seem captured by responding to her point of view. Mm-hmm. I don't have a clue what your point of view is. You're either agreeing with her or you're disagreeing with her, but you're captured by the framing of her point of view, which means your point of view gets eclipsed unless it happens to be the same. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there when he or she says such and such? And well, well, if if I don't show her that that's wrong and, and they get urgent or, or anxiety about, you know, what, what happens if you don't disavow her of that? Well, then I'm going to have to do it. Mm-hmm. So there's the the pure example right in the room of 
if my point of view, if my view of reality doesn't prevail, yours will. Mm -hmm. So I resist that. Mm -hmm. And 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 you, you the fresh the freshest fish part is the experience is the what's the actual experience in the room, and this is where this is where I think what you do is so good in that it you have a way of holding people in that and is there any, can you say a little bit more about how you how you hold people within that frame of this is the experience that you're in right now what what are ways that you do that okay let me first the caveat that the experience isn't always a feeling sometimes okay. it's feeling sometimes it's a thought and sometimes it's a bodily sensation uh, all three of those modalities, but also sometimes it's a process. What I okay. notice is every time, blah, 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 you blee, blee, blee. What's going on with that? What's that about for you? Or before the person starts it for the third time, when one of them says one thing, hold it. What just happened when he said that? What happened inside you? I don't know. Uh, how about in your body or at the grossest level, did you like it or not like it? You know, was it positive or negative? Uh, to to go to that experience, with, which could be a process, which could be a feeling, could be a thought, could be a sensation that's happening at the moment. Okay, and, great. And that, that's helpful. I just want to ground it a little bit because I, I'm, I'm having trouble articulating this, which is what are you watching for in the couple when that's happening, it sounds like it's happening on a lot of different levels. It doesn't sound like content as is as important. But what are you watching for in the two people as they're explaining the parking meter argument or whatever the, the content happens to be? Uh, first of all, people do need space to tell their stories. OK, so it's not a question of content is their life. So, I mean, that's what they're coming for and with. So you do need to. Uh, be respectful of that and to take it seriously and to allow space for it. When it starts getting repetitive, which happens usually very quickly, uh, even though the content changed, the lyrics change, the melody is the same. And that's when you start picking up on it. Uh, if you don't allow people space to tell their stories, then they can't really free themselves up to look at process because, yo, but you don't understand uh, and they have to tell. But some people will go on forever with, no, no, you don't understand that. And they will give you another and another and another 42 examples. But they don't look at the process so that when the process happens in the room, after they have some space and time to and get responded to with their stories, if they are unfolding. Authentically. The best thing for me to do is shut up. Leave them alone. Let them unfold. When they hit a snag, an interruption, even allow a little space for that to see how they deal with it. When that snag interruption begins to be repetitive, then to start coming in to asking them, you know, identifying what it is you're talking about and then asking them about their meaning for that. Uh, 
So a simple one where one of them is, I think I alluded to this one before, when one of them is talking and the other one keeps interrupting. Uh, so after they do that a while and you ask them, you know, you certainly have your turn. I'm interested in your point of view as well, but can you let her finish? Uh, yes. And then they interrupt again and again. Now I'm not so interested in the content. Now I become interested in what becomes stands out for me, figure in our language. Uh, what stands out for me is the urgency of the interruption. Hmm. What's driving that? What goes on when she says these things? And that's the example of, of she's going to define reality or he's going to define reality. So I, I have to get my two cents in uh, or they will prevail in the adversarial dealing with difference mm -hmm. or the next mm -hmm. one where they don't interrupt, but they only respond to what the first person says about issue X, but they don't put out their point of view about what would your point of view be about issue X if you had gone first, if you hadn't heard his, if you were just putting out your view of that situation or, or that topic. Okay, and and where do where uh, you have people sitting face to face? It looks like when they're couples. Well, when the four of us are sitting there, when I'm working with Rita, I sit opposite Rita, and we sit we seat the couple, and we ask them to please take those chairs. Uh, in my office, when I have a couple, uh, I have a triangle an equilateral triangle so we can all see each other. Because if you let them walk in and sit where they want, if you have a sofa, 95% of the time, they will sit on the sofa like two birds on a wire looking at you. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to look at each other. And it's not obvious when they're not going away from looking at each other because they can't look. I mean, it's quite a thing to turn that way. So I ask them to sit in a triangle and I say why I'm doing that. I'm transparent that I'm doing this. I'm asking you to sit here so we can each see each other. One of the other things I ask them, if it's about him, tell him, even if you've told him a hundred times, don't tell me about him. Right. Tell him. And, and when they say, well, what's the difference? I've told, well, the difference is if you two just talk to me, then I don't have a window to have any independent view of what happens between you. So, you know, you're just going to repeat what you usually do then. And uh, part of therapy is having fresh eyes and ears to, for someone to come in with a different point of view. And usually they're, they're, they're okay with that. But then it becomes obvious when, you know, somebody will say something to the therapist like, I couldn't stand it when they did that, but when he did that. Would you tell him that? Well, I really didn't like it when you da 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 da. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right there. What gets in the way of the vibrance that in telling me that gets muted in telling the other who's important in your life? Uh, like it's kind of a detail rather than something really important to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which and, is and, I want them to talk to each other as much as possible. So, and, and here's, a, I, I want to try to unfold a little sequence that I saw in one of the videos. Uh, Guy says, it, it, you, you help 
bring out that the guy has difficulty being vulnerable. Right. He starts to show a little bit of vulnerability in the session. Um, you you begin to you begin to bring the experience of his vulnerability into the room more. And can you talk about the kind of back and forth that you do? I mean, at one point you have him look at her and you say you say to him, uh, "Do you see the tear? You see what's going on in her face?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have him watch her face in that moment. Can you can you uh, talk about kind of where wh- what's going on in your mind as you're beginning to kind of bring this more to the freshness of the experience between the couple? Okay, uh, at least two things. One thing is he is acknowledging and showing some vulnerability. When he gets uncomfortable or scared to not, you know, buckle up and bootstraps and be vulnerable, but to put into the dialogue, I'm getting uncomfortable now, how I need to withdraw, or this is too much for me right now. Or so he's using the interruption to the contact as the contact tissue. Okay, I don't. Can you help me understand that? Because I, I don't. Yeah. I didn't fully get it. Okay. Uh, contact between people. The currency of contact is immediate experience. There is no other currency. So I don't have to have a particular immediate experience in order to be contactful. I only have to be transparent with what's primary at that moment. So if I'm feeling vulnerable, then and I express that either directly or by what I'm doing, then that's contactful. If I get scared or I begin to feel overwhelmed, that interruption, I can either then withdraw or I can use that. Oh, now I'm starting to get scared and feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to change people. We're trying to support them in using who they are at the moment. Because at the moment, getting scared is his primary experience. He doesn't have another one. There's only one primary. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. what the word means. And primary then trumps if you'll excuse the expression, uh, <laughs> I could resist I'll, I'll cut that out. Okay. Uh, it, it, it trumps the, uh, the vulnerability because when he's sharing the interruption, that is the vulnerability. Also, not to try to push him to stay longer because he needs to be able to support that rhythm, that dance of coming out and, and backing up that connection connection includes both contact and withdrawal it's yeah. not just contact uh-huh it's contact and withdrawal which requires movement in between okay so is it too simple to say so so i'm becoming more aware of what i'm up to when we're doing is that too simple a way to put it i'm not clear what you mean what i'm up so to so what i'm up to i i'm oh now i'm withdrawing and I'm giving, and I'm, and I'm articulating that in the therapy, somehow through. So I'm, I'm getting a, a more awareness of myself 
when I begin to come forward with vulnerability, that at a certain point I begin to withdraw. And I'm I'm beginning to watch that process. With yeah, and that's nothing to fix. That's, okay. that's something to be transparent about. But the way you said it, I have a little difficulty because it sounds like you're split in observing yourself and describing, oh, yeah, I noticed that when I da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which is not really coming from your center. From your center is now I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm backing up. So it's it's being congruent with what you say, being transparent and congruent with what you experience at that moment. And the the first session, no, it was the second, I think. Yeah, because it was in three parts, that one, uh, or two parts. Uh, the work was a lot about his characterological issues that he brings to that encounter. The other, the second one is more about hers. Uh, no, the first one, his was the second. I keep getting mixed up. Uh -huh. uh, about her issues that bring to the table and her difficulties that come from her history and who she is and then the interactional stuff. And you can pick up the characterological stuff either within the individuals or you can frequently pick it up in the interaction. When you see an interaction that that doesn't quite fit the situation, if it does, then they're being pretty much authentic and it, it doesn't get any better than that. So then you just stay out of the way. Many therapists have uh, a belief, a rule, a should, a fear that they have to say something, mm -hmm. that they have to ask a question or they have to make a comment. Uh, when sometimes just being there and being quiet is all that's needed. Mm -hmm. Let, let's let's loop back in this idea about the goal of Gestalt therapy here, because it's not it, it's not ch to that they're going to. It's choice, right? I mean, that's that's the that's the goal here. And so, how does this idea that if I'm in congruence and I'm actually experiencing what's happening to me in that moment? What does that have to do with choice? Well, the choice is who I'm going to be authentic with. When, how much. I mean, even with your primary relationship, you don't want to be authentic all the time. A lot of time it's, it's strategic. Who's going to pick up the kids? Who's going to get that? Who's going to do this? Who's going to make that call? Who's going to do that, 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 that? But you want the choice and the option, the functional choice, not just the theoretical choice, but the functional choice where you can actually do it of when you want to show up as you are. You can't know if you're compatible with another person unless you show up. I mean, that's just irrefutable. Uh, you have to show up in order to know if you overlap enough. Nobody's a perfect fit. But on your core, we can compromise on many, many things, but each of us has some core issues, which is part of the work of any good therapy of helping people identify what are their core issues, not the rules they swallowed as a kid, the interjects or the cultural or PC or, but what actually is a core uh, need or want of mine that I cannot be okay without. And if it's a core issue and we have several core, that, that can be a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. 
on most things we can compromise. But uh, where people have difficulties with when their core issues are at odds, uh, for different people, it's different ones. Some of the more popular ones are what we call the basic human dilemma, which is how to be connected to an other and maintain a self. And people have different rhythms of how much contact and how much withdrawal. So if you want a lot of contact all most of the time and I want very little, we're probably not a very good fit. Now, even with therapy, I may find, oh, I can have more contact than that. But then I get to a point of sated and I don't want any more. I want to withdraw and there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to pathologize that. And then the but that may not be a fit for the other person. And you don't have to pathologize that either. I mean, there may be issues there worth looking at to find out, but sometimes we're just not a fit and we might be a fit very well with someone else. The problem is those are differences. So people who get into relationship tend to push those away and not acknowledge them and not show them uh, because difference is bad. You're supposed to want to do this, which is why, in my opinion, and opinion comes from talking to a lot of couples about this. The research is couples who live together uh, first and then decide to get married, you would think they would have a lower divorce rate and they don't. They have a higher mm. divorce rate. Interesting. And uh, when you talk to them, what you find out is when we were living together, the assumption is we're separate unless we agree to do something together like a bank account, like whether we always go out socially together. Uh, the default, though, is we're, we're two separate people and we cobble together what works for us, sometimes jointly, sometimes fused. Uh, that's fine. We get married and everything changes. And then there's uh, I have to do, do the cooking if I'm a woman. You have to take care of the insurance. I have to do I mean, on and on and on. And then it's not working anymore because it's not representing who they are. Right. And it's also kids, when kids, this is where a lot of marriages get in a lot of trouble is when kids and all of a sudden the neat and orderly division of labor and roles gets messy and and their differences really come to the surface. Yes. Yes. And well, go ahead. Uh, the one thing that I noticed in your work, I, my my impression of Gestalt therapy is that it's it's a lot of um, uh, kind of being active in the room, getting people to stand up and talk to their talk to the empty chair and these kind of things. That I didn't see that much of that in your work. It seemed to stay mainly in language as opposed to show me that show me you know show me how she does that, how she points in your face. Or it, um, can you talk a little bit about your your thinking behind that? Sure. Uh... Most of it is theoretical, a little bit of it is practical. Uh, the, as in our previous conversation, to me and to Pearls, the least important part of Gestalt therapy is the techniques. Uh, those can change all the time. Those are new ones are created in a creative moment when you don't have anything else. When you use it the second or third time, it's now a technique. But the techniques are always, always, always in the service of the methodology, which is awareness. Uh, 
and awareness is in the service of restoring self-regulation and choice. So um, whether somebody, Fritz would play with different techniques. So for a while he was using an empty chair. For a while he was using, he was thinking about polarities and with shuttling back and forth from one side of polarity to another side of polarity. So for a while he was engaging with opera or he was engaging with mime. Uh, but these, that's not gestalt therapy. That's Fritz, who had a theater background uh, and also stole from Moreno a lot, uh, but he worked with Max Reinhardt in Berlin, who was a very famous theater director for a while. And uh, so that's what he used. If you watch Laura Pearls, it was different. Mm. Laura comes from a, a very uh, aristocratic family. Uh, she was a, a very fine classical pianist. She would use music. She would use uh, literature. She would use different things. Uh, so... You don't have to have an empty chair to do gestalt therapy. <laughs> I had a client once, a therapist, and she said after, she said, you know, I've been here six weeks and you haven't asked me to talk to an empty chair. Are you sure you're a gestalt therapist? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Which was lovely. <laughs> uh, so the technique is not what's important. What's important and, and it, what's important is the, the, the awareness and for me, the my favorite is dialogue. I mean, dialogue is an integral part of Gestalt therapy to begin with, and I find it as a very useful way of finding out the differences, the snags, the interruptions, uh, the dysregulation that happens when somebody is not self-regulating. Uh, I'm usually on time for appointments. I'm pretty good at that. Uh, and if I'm going out to the waiting room and I get uh, a phone call and I, there's some emergency out there that I know of and it might, so I'll grab the phone and I come out and I'm three minutes late. Always, almost always on time. And the person walks in and they're blowing their stack at me. You don't give a shit about me. You're just here for the money. You, you didn't come out on time. Someone else was more important to me. Within the context of, I've seen them 20 times and I've always been on time. Mm-hmm. There's something else going on there. Very different than if I'm five minutes late this week and 10 minutes late next week, and then I'm on time, and then I'm five minutes late, and somebody comes in and says, you know, I'm really getting annoyed. I work hard to get here on time, and you don't seem to be able to make it. That person is speaking their truth, and it fits. Mm-hmm. it's not I wonder how you feel that way I mean they feel that way because I was late and uh, it, it's not transference or uh, any other kind of interpretive mode that gets me off the hook it's me and I need to own my part mm-hmm. what that's mm-hmm. about I see yeah and, um, and just we have like two minutes can you just say because that makes me think about what is the kind of um What's the stance or the uh, the demeanor? I, I don't know the right word of the Gestalt therapist. What is how does the Gestalt therapist hold themselves in in order to be in order to be present for this process? Uh, 
that would be very different because the 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 meta concept would be to be authentic to be who you are like uh one of my films there's a lot of humor in the films and and somebody said to me in the question and answer afterwards and that that's actually on the film too he says do you need humor in order to be able to do this work at that time for 45 years and i said no it's not about humor it's about being who you are mm-hmm. if you if humor is part of who you are then you need to bring who you are to the meeting but if something else if if fantasy is who you are or music is who you are or whatever is who you are it's the authenticity which is why therapists burn out i believe because they don't show up and so most of the time so that all of the energy is going out and there's no back and forth there's no synergy uh, mm-hmm. to, to it uh, so the the to be respectful of who the other is but to also be respectful of who you are mm-hmm. and again with clinical judgment uh, so somebody walks into your office and they're you know 60 pounds uh, overweight and you notice uh you don't start off with wow you're fat uh, mm-hmm. i mean uh first of all it, they didn't ask you that that uh-huh. you're fat uh and second of all it's inappropriate you don't have the the connection i mean some real examples is a, a new client walks in and they stink they smell mm-hmm. that's not the time to say anything but there is a time to say something about that mm-hmm. when you have enough connection with them to support and that's how you know when to disclose and when not to disclose in dialogue that clinical judgment is if you think it will sustain or deepen the contact then share it if in your clinical judgment it will either diminish the contact or rupture the contact don't share it if you're ambivalent share your ambivalence huh mhm wow well, I, I, there's so, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Is there anything that you feel like we really, we really left out? Um, and then I also want to get to the question of <clears throat> where can people find you, and um, where can tell if you can just give a little bit of um, introduction to your videos. It, it, will your, will your YouTube video, um, the one you have, the introduction to Gestalt, is that, is that going to be there for people to see? Yes, it's there. It's also on Vimeo on demand. That one is on Vimeo on demand is free, the theory. Okay. One, and then there are eight individual therapy films that are for sale. Um, OK, but but that one is free and you can get it at Vimeo on demand. And in about a week or so, we will also have a Vimeo on demand with those two couples films that that you saw um, okay. uh, for for couples. Uh, we do. We organize, uh, mostly people in Europe organize and invite us, or me or Rita, but uh, we organize a summer program every year. We started just one time in 1972, and wow. we did our 48th year last summer in Assisi, Italy, this summer in Assisi, Italy. Unbelievable. So it's the longest training program that I've ever heard of in the world of any orientation. Um, we get about 115 people the groups are like 14 but the whole community is about 114 people and we have a international faculty 
and people from 30 different countries. And we are really proud that we get an 80% return rate. And it's a 12-day workshop for individual Gestalt therapy, uh, preceded by a five-day workshop in uh, Gestalt therapy-informed couples therapy. Great. The couples is smaller. It's about 35. Uh, and we you bring three live, real couples. And that's those two films were made at, at two of those different uh, programs. Uh, so our uh, website is gatla.org, G-A-T-L-A. Great. Stalt Associates Training Los Angeles, but gatla.org. Uh, and okay. I'm open to, uh, you know, be contacted if people have any questions about where they can find out more or get training where they live. Uh, it works. Great. And you're such a wonderful resource, Bob, and I really, really appreciate the time. Um, thank you so much for for participating. Thank you very much, Jason. I just have one more thing because I know yeah. part of what's important in the PACT uh, program is monitoring the level of activation of, of people. And yes. I certainly think that's important and I pay very much attention to that. Again, the research is quite clear that you need a particular critical mass of arousal, excitation, for anybody to learn anything sure. but if it's curvilinear and if it gets too high then it, it, learning taking in listening computing etc falls apart uh so I, I see that as very important but i'm also interested in what happens that you shoot up like that mm -hmm. how what's the phenomenal organization of that person that activates them so quickly or so high that the amplitude goes up so high because you're not walking around with them to help them settle down or move up to get into the sweet spot. They have to be able to, to me, it's not therapy if they can't take it out of the room and do it in the real world. It's mm -hmm. a nice experience, but we're not running a restaurant. We're running a cooking school. So you can go out there and apply it to your life. So while I'm certainly interested in the level of activation and the level of arousal, I'm also interested in going into the process of how that happens. So that person has some choices about what they're doing. Occasionally, there are people who have almost an immediate amygdala-like response, and they can't hear. And I've had one person recently like that, and... So what I did is that after that happened several times and he stormed out of the room uh, and then came back um, and he couldn't hear, he couldn't compute, nothing. The next time I went out there, I got out in the waiting room, I opened the door and I went, shh. <laughs> I said, I'm starting this session. And I said to him exactly what, what I was saying to you, what I notice is. If something hits you in a way that you're uncomfortable or you don't like, you go ballistic and then you're you're really out of it. Uh, and I said, I'm interested in that, not what you're ballistic about, because that changes every time. But what doesn't <laughs> change? Uh, and I can't say much success with with that particular guy. And I think <laughs> there was something organic there, but I'm not sure. It yeah, may, let me. Let me ask you about about your point, though. I mean, because I think within PAC, we would say we would say that, you know, if uh, arousal regulation is only um, it, it's only important within the context of the couple. 
And so if you go up and your partner, you know, says, oh, yeah, that's what he does and that's fine, then and that works for you. Great. It's about the couple being able to regulate each other. Mm-hmm. That's that's the important part. It's 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 and I don't think it's that different from actually what you're saying, which is, you know, what is your awareness of when this person uh, what's helping people to become more aware so that they can make a decision about what kind of couple do we want to be when it comes to, in this example, you know, one person going way up on the arousal regulation scale? Yeah, but I want them to be able to take over those functions. And I think it sounds like you do, too, to take over the function of being able to do their own, quote, arousal regulation. Uh, there's a There are several other models of, of couples therapy that are very different than ours because they don't go with the fusion model to a connection model and they don't go with dealing with difference. But they do have a gestalt foundation. Uh, Les Greenberg is one. Les mm-hmm. is a gestalt therapist an EFT that he started with Susan Johnson and Susan Johnson is another one where they differ. Les is an old friend where they differ is that according to, uh, to Les that Susan Johnson focuses on attachment theory, attachment styles. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to my point of view, to the exclusion of all the rest of character, uh, I think that's fine to focus on, but not to leave out all the rest of care. It's not all about attachment styles. Unless he doesn't focus on that, he focuses on emotional regulation. Uh-huh. That that's that's his focus in it, which I think is also important but narrow. So it's not that there's anything wrong with them, it's the narrowness of it. Which reminds me, the last thing I want to say here, okay. gotta go, is that when I say a fusion model. Fusion, we call it confluence. Fusion or confluence is not bad. What's bad is getting stuck there. Right. If you get stuck in withdrawal, it's bad. If you get stuck in intimacy, it's bad. If you get stuck in getting stuck is bad because it interrupts the dance of how to be connected with an other and maintain a self. Yeah. Sometimes we are misinterpreted as if we're against uh, fusion and confluence. Good sex is beautiful confluence and beautiful fusion, but you don't want to stay there. You don't want to mm-hmm. be locked into I have to be fused. Uh, but because the model, the, the model of marriage is a fusion model, it can sound like we're, we're against fusion. No, we're against getting stuck. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I want to go, I'm going to do some research on this last part and I'm going to email you and hopefully we can continue a dialogue um, over time. Um, But God, once again, thank you so much. And it's just been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been really good for me too and fun. And I like you and thank you. Same goes, same goes. All right. To be continued. Good talking to you, Bob. 